Welcome to the John Wesley Fellows Podcast, the show where John Wesley Fellows have the opportunity to sit down with experts in a variety of fields to talk about issues and topics that are top of mind in today's community. The centerpiece of a foundation for theological education, the Wesley Fellowship Program helps identify, train, and support scholars who are trained in the classical Wesleyan tradition and are committed to traditional innovation. For more information, visit afte.site.org. Well, hello, friends. My name is Stephen Rankin, and I'm here today with a good friend of mine, Tom Albin, a senior John Wesley Fellow, well-known to people across the United Methodist Church and in other connections as well, vast experience. And uh, so I'm, I'm here today to pick Tom's brain a little bit about what he sees in terms of spiritual needs for today and what we can do to be faithful Christians. Tom is the former dean of the Upper Room Chapel with the United Methodist Church in Nashville. He continues as part-time director for the United Christian Ashrams. Both of these are tremendous ministries. And uh, he reminded me that he was in the second group of John Wesley Fellows picked by a foundation for theological education. We won't say what year that is, but I have a pretty good idea of what year it was. So that's, that's been a day or two which is, of course, one of the reasons we wanted to talk to Tom. He's been at this a while and uh, lots of experience and perspective. I've benefited myself personally from Tom's wisdom, and so I'm very excited to speak with him today. Tom, welcome. Thank you, Stephen. It's a joy uh, to be a part of this and to... uh, I'm still adjusting to thinking myself of myself as a senior fellow, but I just retired in August of last year, so I'm, I'm getting used to the idea of senior. Yes, very good. All right. Well, let's talk about serving the church. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you, you really have uh, vast experience working with different denominational leaders, organizational leaders across quite a wide spectrum of groups. And so in your experience, as you've interacted with people, as, as you've led prayer movements, efforts, as, as you've taught and 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 consulted with uh, with leaders. What would you say are the top two or three topics of concern that come up in these interactions that you have with them? I think all leaders that I'm aware of are concerned about the inability to pass on the faith to our children and grandchildren. Here's kind of an illustration. If I was at my home and in front of my house was a little stream and I had a boat to get me from my home to uh, a place of worship, a a Christian church. In the 50s and 60s, if I went and got in my boat, it was a float trip. The culture was pro-Christian and took me there, encouraged me to be engaged. Maybe not deep authentic, maybe just cultural and surface Christianity, but it was easy. It was a pro-Christian culture. In the 70s and 80s, if I went and sat in my boat, uh, I had to paddle a little bit or row because the culture was apathetic. It wasn't going toward the church as a stream. And by the 90s and in the 2000s, the stream is going the opposite way. If I sit in my boat, I'm going to the shopping mall, the sports field, or some other self-centered activity. I'm not going to worship. I'm not going to pray. 
I'm not going to be a part of a Christian fellowship unless I row or whatever. And unfortunately, too many have, rather than recognize the stream has changed course, or that we have, and we stand at the boat dock and curse the stream for not going where it used to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we haven't taught our children to row, uh, how to live as disciples in an actually anti-Christian culture. Right. So you, in your analogy, you know, you gave a pretty good analysis of culture, the, the changes in our culture, popular culture, what we tend to just soak up by being in this environment, what would be two or three topics that we should address with some seriousness as we're talking to young people about these changes and, and a faithful Christian response? It is, you know, to row against the stream, of course, is what you said, but what would that look like, like in practice? What are the topics we need to be thinking about and how should we approach them? I think the key thing for me is clarity that we are disciples of Jesus Christ, first, foremost, and that discipleship is the most exciting, life-giving, fulfilling, you know, there is a creator who knows you, loves you, and we could see people engaging in that. But unfortunately, we're still a little bit in the age of uh, competitive whether than than. Uh, cooperating Mm. with one another. And so Rick Warren's a Baptist. I'm a Methodist. People can read his book, but I'm not going to read it or whatever. (laughs) And I think that the uh, decline, I heard the statistic just recently that for the first time in the United States of America, less than 50% of the people identify themselves as a churchgoer or as a Christian, according to it was either Barna or Pew. So things have changed. We need to change and focus on purpose, life, and what it means, the the joy and delight of being a Christian, whether you're a Christian scientist or a Christian doctor or Christian whatever it is that your vocation is. And as leaders, we both need to model and articulate that vision. Right. How do how do you think we should teach the faith, but do it in a way along the lines of how you just envisioned it? You go back to Exodus, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you sh- shall love the Lord your God, and you shall teach it by the way you rise up and you lie down and you walk in the way. Um, again, here's an illustration of, of the challenge we face, and then I'll try and go a little more specifically into the solution. Right now, in my local United Methodist Church, if and, and this is a bad analogy or a challenging one, but it, let's pretend that we had um, 10 couples from Uganda who came to learn about discipleship here in, in Hermitage United Methodist Church in, in Nashville, Tennessee. And they came, each of them had a young child. And while the children are in daycare, they're out on a bus touring and the bus gets hit by a train and everybody's killed. And nobody knows how to find the families of these little infant children. If you ask my congregation who in those horrible, fabricated but horrible uh, analogy circumstances would step up and rather than let the children go into the the state system, 
would take on the physical care and feeding of a baby. And I would guess that of the able-bodied people in my congregation, there would be 50% of them who would do that, Right. that we feel competent enough to provide food, clothes, teach language, how to walk, how to talk. Now, change the analogy and say that there are 10 teenagers, newly converted Christians who have escaped um, slavery in Uganda, and they're sent here to be discipled as Christians. They're brand new Christians. What percentage of your congregation would step up and say, I'm willing to disciple teach people to read the Bible, to pray, to walk with Jesus. And of my congregation where 50% or more of the congregation would take on the physical care and feeding, I would guess there's probably less than 10% or 15% who would say, I feel spiritually prepared enough, competent enough in my relationship with Christ that I could help nurture and disciple this young person from Uganda or I just made that up. Yes, yeah, yeah. But the point is that we've got people who are consumers and observers, but not disciples. And what changes would be needed to go from a entertainment-based church, wonderful music and worship, to a spiritual transformation, maturity of discipling? Yes. And you mentioned, you made reference to our forebears in the faith, and you have a, you've done a lot of research on Methodists in earlier generations, particularly the, the early phase of the Methodist movement and all that. What is some wisdom from the Wesleyan way of the Christian life, digging back into your research that you've done, that you think might uh, give examples of the very thing we're talking about now, where they're, they're casting this vision, but they're also living it in a, in a visible way for others to observe? That's a great question. And yeah, I had the privilege of spending years of my life trying to discern the Methodism of the Methodists. <laughs> Uh, you know, there's always a difference between what a leader uh, does and what the people pick up and practice. And so the first years of my research, I read everything that John and Charles Wesley wrote chronologically. So if they published hymns in a certain year, 1751, I read all those hymns. And then I read all the, the letters and all the diaries and journals and created this kind of master grid and then began to say, okay, who were the people who heard them preach? Who were the women who fed them supper before the class meeting? And that sort of thing. And had the good fortune of coming across dozens of diaries and journals and thousands of letters of early Methodist people. And what I found was you could kind of put it in six pieces or insights. One is clarity about the mission of God. And so every early Methodist understood that their faith was to be born into a family that joined God in mission. And God's mission is not to make me happy. It's to reach those who are unreached. So this passion to visit the prisons and visit the, the poor and engage, that was just normal, the mission of God, the clarity about that. I don't think a lot of people who join my church uh, are clear that they're here to engage in that mission. I think they're here to find 
a God who will protect and bless them and their family and their loved ones. And God does that, but God's about more than that. Then uh, beyond that, there are like five specific things I would name. So first, actually, there's six. One, the means of grace. How do I grow in grace? What are the things that feed my soul, charge my battery? And then secondly, the means of grace. How does God's divine energy continue to transform my heart and life and empower me in the life I was created to live? Means of grace, then means of groups. True transformation only happens in a family. It it happens as you're in a small group. And uh, probably the closest things to illustrate that today would be like the, the AA movement, the Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous. You, you, know, a sm- you have to have a sponsor and to be in part of the early Methodist movement to join the society. You had to have a sponsor, someone who already was on the journey and was inviting you to join. Uh-huh. And then with your sponsor, you were part of a small group. And that group became the place that you learned to live, not just learned about, but lived into. Charles Wesley, every small group had music. So it wasn't just the teaching word, it was the music. And there were different songs they sang in the class meeting, which were for seekers or provenient grace, that were different than the band meeting, where you were born again and growing Mm -hmm. in grace, Mm -hmm. or the select society where you were a spiritual adult, needing other spiritual adults to uh, exhort you and nurture and challenge you to loving good works. So means of grace, means of groups, means of music, then means of structures. These structures created opportunities for people who had gifts and graces uh, to develop them from a participant to a leader, to a local preacher, to a traveling preacher. And these are lay traveling preachers. These are not set aside fully uh, ordained and fully funded clergy. Uh, well, and, there's, mm, go ahead. Yeah. And the final thing I'd say, and this is a thing that I really would, I wish I could inject this into every seminary professor's brain and every theological student's brain is that in the spirit, there is the desire and ability to grow just like in every baby there is the desire and ability to grow. I didn't have to spank any of my children to get them to crawl. <laughs> when they got to that stage of development, they, they wanted to crawl. Right. And I didn't have to force them to walk, and I didn't have to force them to run. Uh, all I had to do was be there to make sure they were fed, cared for, and when they were ready to learn and wanting to learn to teach them. Well, that's, I hope it's helpful. That's, that's very, there's a lot there to chew on. Uh, I'm going to, there's one thing you said specifically that sort of leads us to the next kind of category of question about contemporary issues that you see. And I was thinking about your, your description of the structures in Methodism historically. And one thing I heard is that through those structures, which really are organic to the movement, these these are not somehow artificially imposed, they grow out of the vision of, of the mission of God and the kind of relationships with, that people had with one another. Um, 
So this organic leadership development, and yet in our day and time, I think leadership development has become its own kind of cottage industry, maybe not just a cottage industry, but a but an industry. So leadership development. And so when, when pastors and other leaders start thinking about how to develop their leaders, their, their inclination is to go look for a guru, a program, a something that they can bring back to the church rather than thinking, what are the structures endemic to us that that more naturally, so to speak, encourage that kind of leadership development. And I'm wondering, let let me pose that as a kind of contemporary problem, perhaps. We maybe don't think of leadership development connected enough to these other principles that you mentioned. And I wonder what you might have to say about that. I think you're exactly right. Through the modern sort of education and degree granting system, we have created a pathway to power for people who color within the lines, uh, follow the rules, get the degrees, and therefore have a right to authority granted by the degree granting system rather than by the community. And so shifting the model and the goal from credentialing to fruit bearing or Mm. character uh, maturity Mm. or wisdom. Um, And the Wesleys created a system where uh, almost like the book about Elisha Cole, uh, multiple intelligences, Mm. I believe Cole is the, or Coles is the writer. They created a place where a system where people's gifts and graces could be identified and then utilized for the glory of God, Mm. regardless of whether they could go away and leave their context and go to a university to get a degree or to a graduate school or whatever. And it was much more indigenous and much more organic. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And so I think our challenge is, can we, trust the spirit of God in our day and time to raise up again leaders? And can we as people in power uh, see our role much like, again, like a family? I Mm -hmm. I respect deeply uh, Richard Rohr and his work on, uh, like his book, Falling Upward, the second half of life, Mm -hmm. you know, and do we see our role as um, senior fellows now not filling the, the pulpits or the, the lecture podiums, but making space for the younger generation and offering opportunities, coaching, advice, support, prayer? And again, the, the bigger picture is Christ-likeness. Mm-hmm. Am I growing in Christ and can I help Christ grow in you, whether you're male or female or what? Uh, ethnic origin, your background is, and but that the goal is to be fully alive in Christ, or to put it in another little aphorism, every person is gifted. The New Testament is absolutely clear about that. But do we as spiritual leaders look for those gifts and then create opportunities for people to use their gift? Every person is gifted. Every gift is needed. And I think we in the West got into the great man, great woman mythology mm-hmm. of, you know, we just get a gifted leader and we all follow them. Right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I follow the Kansas City Chiefs. I, I support them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, am I really contributing anything by talking to my television when they're playing in the Super Bowl? No. Uh-huh. Uh, 
And many of us have made Christianity a spectator sport rather than getting on a team where we grow ourselves into the joy of actually being in the, in the game of life or in the game of discipleship. Right. When I look at my ministry and my years with the United Methodist Church in the upper room, uh, the deepest joy is to look at the people who are now beyond me in their gifts and their gifts, even in the Christian ashram movement, the person who's replacing me uh, is in his late 40s. And, you know, I'm finding real joy in seeing his opportunities for ministry expanding, which means I have to back up. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, it's much more of a, a picture of the family and of believing that every person is gifted and every gift is needed and shifting the role from the ABCs, attendance and so on, into uh, the character of Christ, Christ-likeness, or people discovering their gifts, developing them, using them. And the joy of, if you had the privilege of raising children, you know, when your child learned to walk and could walk across the room and not fall down and they'd get this great big smile and we'd all cheer and clap because they did it. Or when they walk across the stage in high school and then they walk out the door to go to college or they go into their career. That's the Wesleyan vision. Uh, it's not about building the biggest chapel and having the biggest budget and how many thousand members attend your church, but how many people live that life of God that they were created for. I I may have rambled past where you (laughs) wanted to go with your question. That's okay. Uh, You know, again, several things you've said. I would guess that most pastors, clergy, leaders Mm -hmm. would completely agree with what you said. This is a case of the, the agreeing and the doing are two different things. And having having the courage, along with some, I think, strategic sense about how to make the change. This is, this is going to be really critical in, the, in the, this new generation we're entering. And so could you, as we start to wrap it up here a little bit, could you mention top two or three needs that you see, spiritual needs that people have? Obviously, we've, we're, we're touching on them as we go through this conversation, sure. but could you pinpoint contemporary needs now as we as we can draw on the resources that you've mentioned, uh, learn from our forebears, and and in our context, uh, mm-hmm. what are those needs, and how do you think we should go about addressing them? I think the first need is to pick the right goal or the right telos, the right end. Am I willing? Uh, to evaluate my ministry by the number of mature disciples that I've had the privilege of influencing. You know, it's the work of God uh, to that we're born again. But again, John Wesley was very clear that to lead a person to Christ without giving them the means to be nurtured in the faith is simply begetting children for the murderer. Yes, that is an arresting phrase. (laughs) It really is. But he understood that born again is not the goal. Getting saved is not the goal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Becoming spiritual mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers is the goal to help in the mission of God to seek and to save the lost, to, to reach people with the love and the liberating power of the gospel. And whether that's one or three or 10, that's, you know, it's the quality and the depth of the relationship 
not the number of people who come to be entertained by your music team. I mean, I this is very unkind, but I've said I could make any church grow if I had the money mm-hmm. because I would just get this talented, beautiful music worship leadership team. And then I'd hire a clown uh, to greet the children when they came in and make rubber balloon things for them. And I'd make children want to come and parents happy to bring their kids and watch the, the, the performances and be entertained for, until they got tired of me or somebody had better entertainment. But the church would grow. But am I making disciples who can disciple their children and grandchildren? And the real measure of my faith is my ability to pass on the faith. So we've been winning the wrong game. We've been looking at numbers rather than depth. And we've been looking far rather than close, I think. Well, you've said a number of things with with some uh, implications for our fellowship. And of course, we, John Wesley Fellows and others in the larger network, we, we talk about these things a lot. There is a sense, um, I'm getting to my last question for you, Tom. There's a sense that people who work in the academy, just to use the generic term for it, there are a lot of scholars who don't work in the academy directly. They may teach some, but they're pastoring and doing other things. But many of us in the fellowship find our primary vocation within the confines of, you know, a traditional understanding of a school of theology, college, university. And there's a lot of pressure then on higher education, theological education these days. So as you kind of stand where you you stand at this point in your career and your experience, what would you, what kind of counsel would you give to people who believe God's called them to do PhD level work and have some kind of teaching role in this Mm -hmm. large complex of structures and relationships? What what would you want to say to them to help us help them get ready for the next 15 or 20 years? Short form, beware of Babylon. Uh, Yes. Babylon, for me, the Babylonian captivity uh, is modernism. Mm. Thinking that if I teach a course that people will hear the truth and do the truth. Now, it's not, if your gift is teaching, you need to continue to teach the course. But if you are not discipling and producing disciples the few and the ready. The Wesleys always had a way to reach the many, but nurture and take away the barriers that were holding back the ready, Mm -hmm. the people who are ready. Mm -hmm. So the Babylonian captivity of modernism is the mistake that if I write a book and teach a course, it will make disciples. It will inform people of discipleship, but discipleship happens through relationship. And people who add that dimension of relationship with the insights of their discipline then are spiritual life givers. And I can name people who in my life I studied with as an undergraduate and a graduate student. But those few uh, professors who were available and willing when I was available and ready changed my life. Yes. It wasn't that I read their books and took the tests. It was that their life impacted my life. Right. So I jokingly say, beware of Babylon. The Babylonian captivity of modernism is the mistake that discipleship happens through information only. 
Information is absolutely important, but it's only one part of the three parts of the Wesleyan way. Right. It's understanding, experience, and community. Experience represents the sponsor, somebody who's walked with Christ, who as a tenured professor can teach you how to be a tenured professor or a junior professor who, or a dean who walks with God and can handle whatever the structure is right. um, and yeah. disciple you in that way. And yeah. for women and men, and they, and, you know, I'm so grateful. I'm the father of three daughters that uh, we are much more aware of the differences and the benefits of gender insights and women's ways of knowing and all those sorts of things. And, and um, just if we deeply believe that God has created each of us uniquely and every part of the body matters equally. Mm. Uh, one of the most destructive things I've seen in church structure is that the world or the system sets up a hierarchy and we drink the Kool-Aid and we become part of the Babylonian captivity of that system mm -hmm. and enjoy the privileges of serving Babylon, <laughs> but it, it doesn't produce the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, wisdom. So I would say for anybody in our fellowship, uh, have someone who can walk with you or two or three people together in a small group uh, where there is spiritual wisdom. Seek out someone who knows your reality, but has walked with the Lord a little more than you have. And to live in the kingdom of God system, not just the system of the academy or of the denomination or whatever it is. One last comment about the Wesleyan way. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if you read the books, Dictionary of Spirituality and all of those things, the comment is that the Wesleys understood that the Christian life at its deepest place is a life of love and joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Yes. And where you find people who are really living the life they were created for, even if it's difficult or in the valley of the shadow, there's a joy in that. And so that would be sort of my parting uh, prayer yeah. for wisdom, for courage, and joy to be the characteristics that people would know the John Wesley Fellows and AFTI by. Right. Yes. It takes appropriate self-awareness. It takes awareness of the context and mm -hmm. some courage, right? So we, we pray for God to give us courage as we try to make a difference moving into the future. Yeah. Tom Albin, thank you so much for this conversation. You know how much I respect you and how much I've appreciated your leadership in my life. So I, I look forward, we look forward to sharing these insights with people who will listen in. So thanks a bunch. You're very welcome. This concludes today's episode of the John Wesley Fellows Podcast. Today's episode was produced by Daniel Yike. Music by Ian Post. This podcast is a production of a Foundation for Theological Education and the Wesley Fellowship Program. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.